Hi everyone. Welcome to the Yukon Internal Medicine Podcast. This is Alatur Shujan, your host and a chief medical resident at the University of Connecticut Internal Medicine Residency. A quick disclaimer before we start, all opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the Yukon Department of Medicine. The content presented is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. With this episode, I would like to reintroduce ambulatory series. Starting this week, we'll be releasing weekly episodes covering ambulatory topics. So if any of you did not have a chance to discuss the topic of the week in clinic, tune in at the end of the week and get our quick recap on that topic. Today's episode will be dedicated to outpatient management of diabetes and more specifically medication types involved in outpatient diabetes therapy. My goal is to give you an update on pros and cons for each of the medication classes. As I go through each of them, pay close attention to the mechanism of action, effects on weight loss, cardiovascular benefits, renal benefits, and effects on lowering A1C. We will discuss seven medication classes starting with four most commonly prescribed, followed by two less favored, and end with a new therapy that was just approved by FDA for use in type 2 diabetes. Let's begin with the cornerstone of type 2 diabetes management, metformin. Metformin is a biguanide which works by decreasing hepatic glucose production and is not associated with hypoglycemia when used alone. Additionally, metformin increases peripheral glucose utilization. It is usually associated with 1 to 2 point reduction in A1C and is usually weight neutral. Metformin is currently first-line therapy for newly diagnosed type 2 diabetes. There is moderate evidence for cardiovascular benefits from metformin therapy, supported by UKPDS 34 trial from 1998. It is important to note, however, that there have been no randomized control trials since then evaluating the impact of metformin versus placebo on cardiovascular disease and renal protection. Most common side effects of metformin are diarrhea and nausea. Usually, these side effects can be avoided by starting with a low dose and titrating up slowly, or by prescribing an extended release formulation. Metformin is renally cleared and should be avoided in patients with low EGFRs, as it can precipitate lactic acidosis. The current recommendations are such that renal function should be checked annually in patients on metformin. If patient is already on metformin and EGFR falls below 30 and 45 mLs per minute, risks and benefit of therapy continuation need to be discussed with the patient. It is not recommended to start metformin if EGFR is 30 to 45 mLs per minute, and it is contraindicated to start metformin for somebody whose EGFR is less than 30 mLs per minute. Additionally, metformin is contraindicated in severe hepatic dysfunction, unstable or acute congestive heart failure, and during the perioperative period. It is also recommended that metformin is held before IV contrast is given and not restarted until 48 hours after the contrast was administered. Now that we have discussed first-line therapy for type 2 diabetes, let's move on to another commonly prescribed agents, GLP-1 receptor agonists and DPP-4 inhibitors. GLP-1 receptor agonists are a type of incretin mimetic. Incretin mimetics act by stimulating postprandial pancreatic insulin secretion, 
suppressing glucagon secretion and slowing gastric emptying, decreasing appetite, thereby leading to an average weight loss on maximum dose of therapy ranging from 2 to 6 kilograms and with minimal hypoglycemia risk. GLP-1 receptor agonists are expected to lower A1C by an average of 1 to 1.5 points. Examples of GLP-1 receptor agonists include loraglutide, exenatide, semaglutide. Most of them are injectables, but semaglutide comes in a pill form. Exenatide should not be given in patients with EGFR less than 30 ml per minute. Remaining GLP-1 receptor agonists require no renal adjustment. Currently, both daily loraglutide and weekly semaglutide are approved for obesity treatment in patients without diagnosis of diabetes. Loraglutide, semaglutide, dolaglutide all have been shown to reduce cardiovascular disease independent of the impact on A1C and are strongly recommended in patients with diabetes and established cardiovascular disease. So some of the studies that support this are leader um, from 2016, sustained 6 from 2016, and rewind from 2019. A secondary benefit of prevention of diabetic kidney disease progression was noted in the three cardiovascular outcome studies we just discussed as well. GLP-1 receptor agonists are associated with an increased nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. They also may be associated with decreased gastric emptying, so it is important to monitor for changes in the effectiveness of the medications relying on absorption. One major concern with this type of medication is dose and duration-dependent thyroid C-cell hyperplasia. So black box warning has been issued on all medications except for exenatide. Additionally, these medications are contraindicated in patients with personal or family history of medullary thyroid carcinoma with MAN syndrome type 2. FDA continues to collect data on GLP-1 receptor agonists and DPP-4 inhibitors, possibly increasing risk of pancreatitis and pancreatic duct metaplasia in patients with type 2 diabetes. Now let's talk about DPP-4 inhibitor. They work by preventing the inactivation of the incretin hormone GLP-1 in the peripheral circulation. They come in oral formulation. Linagliptin does not need to be dose-adjusted for EGFR, whereas citagliptin, alagliptin, and saxagliptin do. There is no risk of hypoglycemia. Some of the downsides of DPP-4 inhibitors are a limited impact on A1C with 0.5 to 0.8 point reduction with their use. They tend to be weight-neutral. Sagagliptin and alagliptin potentially associated with increased risk of heart failure and pancreatitis. Another commonly prescribed medication class we have to discuss is SGLT2 inhibitors. SGLT2 inhibitors work by inhibiting SGLT2 receptors expressed on the renal proximal tubule and mediating the reabsorption of the majority up to 90% of filtered glucose. Inhibition of SGLT2 reduces hyperglycemia by increasing renal glucose excretion, resulting in an A1C reduction of 0.5 to 1% on average. Because of the associated myelosmotic diuresis, SGLT2 inhibitors can lead to 2 to 3 kg sustained weight loss in a modest 2 to 3 mm of mercury decrease in systolic blood pressure. Even these medications rely on EGFR, 
their effectiveness decreases with lower renal function. However, there is increasing evidence to support continuous use of SGLT2 inhibitors for both renal protection and for cardiovascular benefits in patients with lower EGFRs. There are currently four HDL2 inhibitors approved by FDA, um, canagliflozin, empagliflozin, depagliflozin, and ertugliflozin. All of them are daily medications. Three HDL2 inhibitors have been demonstrated to lead to cardiovascular disease reduction, independent of the impact of the A1C. However, only two of them, empagliflozin and canagliflozin, received FDA approval for that purpose. This data came out of Amperreg Outcome 2015, Canvas Program from 2017, and Declaratimi 58 from 2018 studies. HDLT2 inhibitors have been demonstrated to decrease progression of the diabetic kidney disease, more specifically for canagliflozin and depagliflozin agents. And this data came out from Credence 2019 and DAPA-CKD 2020 studies, respectively. There is also rising evidence for SGLT2 inhibitor use in heart failure to decrease the risk of hospitalization for both empagliflozin and apagliflozin being approved by FDA for that indication. Most common side effects associated with this group of medications are hypovolemia, especially when combined with another diuretic. SGLT2 inhibitors have also been linked to urinary tract infection, genitally fungal infections. Fournier's gangrene is a feared but very rare complication of SGLT2 inhibitor therapy. Last but not least, there have been cases of euglycemic DKA related to SGLT2 inhibitors, so important to keep an eye out for that. Now that we've discussed metformin, GLP-1 receptor agonist, DPP-4 inhibitors, and SGLT2 inhibitors, let's complete the discussion with the remaining two classes of medications so-called glitazones and sulfonylureas. Both of these classes of medications have been falling out of favor, and we will discuss why. CZD's medications, or so-called glitazones, work by binding to peroxisome proliferator-activated receptor gamma in adipocytes to promote adipogenesis and fatty acid uptake, peripheral but usually not visceral fat. They come in oral formulation and have an excellent impact on A1C, 1 to 1.5 point reduction. Neither pioglitazone nor rosiglitazone need renal adjustment. These agents usually have low risk of hypoglycemia. These drugs have been shown to also be beneficial in patients with non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Some of the downsides of these medications are weight gain, lower extremity edema, and worsening of the heart failure. There is black box warning for New York Heart Association class 3 or 4. It takes approximately 8 to 12 weeks before medication takes full therapeutic effect, so you do have to wait a while. Pioglitazone has possible association with increased bladder cancer risk that is dose and duration of therapy dependent. Now sulfonylureas. They work by closing ATP-sensitive potassium channel on the cell membrane of pancreatic beta cells which depolarizes the cell by preventing potassium from exiting. This depolarization opens voltage-gated calcium channels. The increase in intracellular calcium leads to increased fusion of insulin granules with the cell membrane and therefore increased secretion of mature insulin. 
Sulfonylureas come in oral formulation and have an excellent impact on A1C with 1 to 2 point reduction. Some of the infamous complications related to their use are hypoglycemia and weight gain. They are metabolized by the kidney, so renal adjustment may be needed in those renally impaired. Lastly, FDA safety warning for increased risk of cardiovascular death for all sulfonylureas was issued, so they have been gradually falling out of favor. Last but not least, let's talk about a new medication. As of May 13, 2022, the FDA approved teresepatite as a weekly injectable medication for the treatment of type 2 diabetes. This is the first drug in a new class of mimetic medications which combines glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, GIP, and GLP-1 receptor agonists. GLP-1 and GIP are both incretin hormones that are secreted in the intestine in the response to food intake. GIP is known to be a more physiologically active incretin. The amount of GIP in patients with type 2 diabetes is the same as in healthy individuals. However, the response to GIP is significantly reduced in those with type 2 diabetes. There are several phase 3 trials of terzepatite that have been published thus far, SORPASS 1 to 5, that demonstrated superior A1C lowering ability and weight reduction both in drug-naive patients and those already on diabetes therapy. The cardiovascular outcome trial for this therapy is expected to be completed by 2024. As more data emerges on this new therapy, it will be interesting to see how it integrates into current practice. So in quick summary, we discussed seven medication classes today. Because of their efficacy, cardiovascular, and renal benefits, either weight neutrality or weight loss benefits, and a relatively benign side effect profile, metformin, GLP-1 receptor agonist, DPP-4 inhibitors and SGLT2 inhibitors remain the current favorites for outpatient management of type 2 diabetes. So-called glitazones and sulfonylureas, on the other hand, are falling out of favor primarily due to their side effect profile. Lastly, a new incredimimetic terzapatite was just approved by FDA for use in type 2 diabetes, and with once weekly administration, it could be a promising new therapy. Data on its cardiovascular effects is still pending, however. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and learned something new. We will see you next week.